0: RPG Lessons Learned, when the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. Hello, Brian. Hey, Dusty. How's it going? It's going well. Are you ready to do another episode? Uh, Heck yes. Awesome. Today, we are talking about Dusk.
1: Dusk was a fun game. I I remember it so well, it's like we played it twice.
0: Yeah, and and the joke Brian's making is that we did play it twice. In fact, I've played it three times.
1: It's a fun game.
0: It was. Uh, It is. So Dusk, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, was actually written by one of the Penny Arcade guys. So Mike Gabe Krahulik put Dusk together and hosted it um, at penny-arcade.com for a very short time. He took it down, uh, no explanation, some months later. I I assume Wizards had a problem. But while it was up during that very brief period, I snagged it.
1: I didn't realize it was taken down.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, again, no, no no post about it. I, like I said, I assume Wizards had a problem or someone had a problem. Hey, maybe uh, maybe the publisher that owns Twilight had a
1: problem. Very possible. Because Dusk was a takeoff on Twilight. It was? I, <laughs> I'm just now getting this. Now I'm kidding. Okay, thank God.
0: <laughs> so let me, uh, let me recap the game, and I want to walk through... Um, all the major events so that the the listening audience has a fishbone to, to hang our discussion on. And then we'll go back and discuss lessons learned. Does that work for you, Brian? That works for me. Perfect. So I'm actually flipping through the copy I printed. Um, Dusk opens up with a, a young missing teenage girl named Tess Green. And you start off talking to Tess's mother and you search Tess's room for clues. Um, you speak to Tess's friend who runs a, or who works in her parents flower shop across the street. And either through finding a playbill in Tessa's room or speaking to Tessa's friend and getting a playbill, you get a playbill. And I actually made this playbill for our game. I, I made a prop. And the playbill is for a play uh, by a traveling troop of actors just outside of Fallcrest. Yes, we were still in the interior veil. Yes. Called Dusk. And it's very clearly a knockoff of Twilight. So it's it's the traveling actors. It's very much the uh, you know Robert Pattinson... Uh, Peter Facinelli, however you pronounce the guy who played.
1: You've watched this. I actually do know. And you've read the books, too.
0: I did. We're not going to get into that, though. (laughs) So it's meant to be takeoffs of several of the actors, not all the actors, um, are are, are this Dwell family. And and they happen to be in town. And all the teenage girls are going wild for this new play, Dusk. Just like at the time this adventure was released, all the teenage girls and 40-year-old moms were going wild for Twilight. So, uh, it's, it's kind of a takeoff on Twilight, but to take off on the Twilight craze, not so much the actual plot of Twilight.
1: Yeah, I would say that's fair.
0: So you go, um, you find this playbill from Tessa's friend, Tessa's room, um, you investigate the actual troupe of actors. And, and of course it's morning, they perform at night. So they're asleep. And Mike Krahulik did a great job of building all these different scenes where you interrogate different people. And he never created dialogue. Um, so much as, like, for this question, here's the answer. He just gave a bulleted list of, of quote, possible lines. And that bulleted list was great to work from. But, basically, you wind up speaking to all the major actors. Um, the actor that plays Edward, the actor that play, the actress that plays Bella, um, the actress that plays Carlisle, um, Emmett, and then finally there's a crew wagon, and then a, a wardrobe slash props wagon. And you can search all those wagons for clues. There's there's, you know, a dress that matches the dress that Tess was wearing in the props wagon with, with, with you know, a, a hair that matches Tess's uh, hair color. I forget what that was. Um, the actors give, you know, various clues. And, of course, the perpetrators wound up being the crew. So the actors were actors, but the crew were legit vampires that were using the the, the acting troupe to mask their activities and using the play to master activities and they were actually preying on the, 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 the plays young fans, you find that out. And then there's a big chase sequence where, you know, you, you they hop aboard one of the, uh, one of the wagons from the traveling acting troupe, and you hop aboard. And there was, there was this long chase sequence and you, you do finally wind up rescuing young Tess. And that was the plot.
1: So that was the plot, but there are certain,
0: But that's not what we did. Yes. So now we'll talk about some lessons learned. And you know what? Honestly, that's more or less what we did. So you want to go scene by scene and talk about lessons learned and what we actually did? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. Do we want to start with, I mean, the conversation with the mother doesn't stand out in my mind very much.
1: No. But the friend across the street, Sarah, do you remember that? I do not. So that is, that was set up. Okay. Putting myself back in my headspace when I was playing this, I knew roughly that it was a takeoff on twilight, but I think I had, um, a bias or a prejudice toward twilight at the time. So I really didn't know what to think about it. So, um, I don't know that I really started feeling the game until later on. Um, so some of the earlier details just are lost on me.
0: All right. I'm going to remind you of a few things then. Okay. When you were interrogating Tessa's friend,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, turns out, so, so at the time, uh, Brian was playing a dragonborn.
1: Yes, I was. A and, paladin.
0: Yes, a dragonborn paladin. And I don't know if you remember this, Brian, but Sarah developed a bit of crush on you. Oh, really? During this adventure.
1: I don't remember that.
0: She completely did. In fact, we we played on that a couple of adventures later. But, um, for me, the main lesson learned I want to talk about, I mean, I was already seeing it in the game at this point. There'd only been two NPC interactions. Tessa's mother, Rosalyn, and then Sarah. The bulleted list of dialogue options. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike Krahulik did a great job. I mean, every, you can't switch the lines. This character couldn't say this other character's lines. The lines are really well written to be that character. And overall, this was one of the first games. This was the first game where we seriously role-played. Oh, absolutely. We role-played the heck out of this game. We did. This game was mostly talking, and it was awesome.
1: Uh, It was. Uh, Was this the game when Mike... Um, Yeah, Mike basically, was. he was a beat cop in this? He didn't mean to be, but that's exactly what he became. Yeah. So
0: all of a sudden, you know, we were, we're playing, and he's, he's interrogating these NPCs, and it was like an episode of Law and Order. Yeah. Like, um, I'm gonna I say Law and Order. And I'm gonna quote Dragnet, but he was very much like just the facts. But it reminded me of Law and Order. Like he's he's cutting through the chase. He, he he's he's asking us questions. He's not taking any guff, and he's trying to get to the answers to find this missing
1: girl. So one thing that I found, and this may be obvious to most people, but it's not to me. I think once you actually get into the character and place yourself in the world you think more in terms of like like what's the contextual reality of what's going on and you ask more realistic more pertinent questions than you do if you're just you know have playing in a cavalier fashion you know where you're not like really thinking about you know what's 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 around you like what would the motivations of you know person x or person y be um i think this was the first game when i really started Getting that, yeah, Falkrest came alive in this game.
0: Yes, um, High Town, Low Town, the river running through Falkrest, the the trade road I mean, Falkrest very much came alive as you worked to retrace Tessa's
1: steps. Mm-hmm. So her friend, though, I, she she um, developed developed a crush on uh, this was uh, Malkior, right? Yeah, it was Malkior. That was uh, and, which is funny enough. That was Mike's character. Uh, the name of his character that he played for years, who I, I actually ended up playing that character in Skyrim. Um, but uh, she wasn't the redhead, was she?
0: No, the redhead was the girl that you rescued. I can't remember. Let me see the description of there's Sarah. A, I,
1: there's a redhead in a green dress.
0: I, that, that was, Tess. That's, that was the, Tess. that's the girl
1: you were looking for. Okay.
0: Um, Sarah was, quote, a pretty girl with blonde hair pulled back in a tight button.
1: Ah, Malkyord have like that.
0: And, well, Malkyord Malky was actually intensely uncomfortable. You played it, you played it to the hilt, so what happened was is you were good copping her, yes, and you nailed a, a charisma role,
1: ah um, uh, yes, 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 yeah,
0: I think you nat twenty yeah. on on a persuasion role or, or something, but you nat twenty on charisma after Mike had I, already been kind of playing it hard, playing it bad cop, that never happens in real life yeah, and and her sense of overwhelming relief at you coming in and being the good cop, and she can talk to you. She produced the playbill. She handed it off. She told you all about it. You assured her, like she'd been desperately worried about her friend, but she didn't want to admit that it would snuck out the night before. Yeah. You're this this you know seven foot tall dragon born <laughs> strong figure, promising to rescue her friend. Yeah, she she developed a crush. It was our. I think it was the. Best, who wouldn't? Yeah, who wouldn't? I think it was the best handled romantic tangle- entanglement we've ever done.
1: Yeah, most of mine are just terrible.
0: Yeah. But uh, we, we we handled this one carefully. Like, n- nothing ever happened. Nothing ever... I mean, it was it was a young girl's crush on yeah. an older adventure, and the older adventure was very uncomfortable with yes. it. And that was fun to play. It, it never got creepy. So, shall we move on? Sure, let's move on. So, you guys showed up um, at the wagons, and I don't like to remember this, Brian. I, I had taken some gaming paper.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, again, gamingpaper.com, no affiliation with us since we're just a small podcast starting out here. But I had drawn the the five or six carts... From this caravan of, of actors, I had drawn it. Um, I had drawn the you know, the trees around it because all of this the, the 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 play itself wasn't in Falkrest. It was outside of Falkrest on quote the Regal Farms, which I always assumed Mike Ruhlick was doing a, a play on Regal Sentiments. But at the Regal Farms is where this took place outside of Falkrest. So I, I drew some you know the tree lines, some woods around the carts, you know some campfires, um, footsteps coming from the carts, and, and we didn't actually have any tactical encounters in that map. But you guys definitely walked from cart to cart, you know, knocking on the cart door and and speaking with the actors.
1: Yeah, and then we we ended up following the footsteps that we saw off to the other map.
0: You did. Yeah, you actually – so here's a piece of feedback on on the adventure itself. Um, You followed the footsteps of Kellen Dwell, who played Emmett Cunning. So basically the the, the Kellen Lutz, you know, muscular, stronger, um, dark-haired actor. You followed him out into the woods where he was, you know, meditating, and you interrupted his meditation, and, and, and he, you know, threw a string of profanities at you about, you know, you're interrupting his, his headspace as an actor, and don't you know what it's like to deal with artists, and do you see a girl here? And um, that, was the, that was our third NPC interaction, and I played it to the hilt, but Feedback on the Adventure, that conversation ends in kind of a shoehorned-in encounter with a couple of wolves and a dire wolf. So you follow his footsteps into the woods. You're in this clearing. He's yelling at you. And then for no real reason, all of a sudden, some wolves show up.
1: So, okay. So it was written that way. Basically, yes. we need an encounter. So let's have random wolves show up.
0: Yeah, you can tell. So there's there really one major set piece encounter in, in the adventure. And hey, Mike Rulick's not a professional adventure writer. And I'm giving this negative feedback with the caveat that this is my favorite pre-written adventure I have ever run. Yeah, I
1: mean, so but, things we love the most, we can be the we feel we can be the most critical of. Yep. So, but the thing is, I guess thinking about this narratively, I mean, maybe narratively is the wrong way of putting it. Trying to place yourself in the real world. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll go take out my trash, and you know, then wolves show up.
0: You know, and then you have to fight them.
1: But you know, like, in, if you live in the wilderness, I mean, I mean, like, that very well could happen. Yeah.
0: Wolves showing up in a dire way, it's only natural, right? It's only natural. No, it, it felt very artificial. It felt like the director of some action movie saying, you know what? We need an action beat here. But, you know, lesson learned. I wouldn't do it now. I did it at the time. I threw the dire wolves at you. It was fourth edition, so the combat took a while, but I think we all enjoyed the combat.
1: Yeah. Uh, God help me. I enjoy the combat in fourth edition so much.
0: So we, uh, Went back to you guys. Interrogated several other actors. There was a wonderful scene where Mike was taking the lead, um, interrogating. Let me see. Durrance Dwell, who played the part of Edward Cunning, and the character, the way Mike Hulick wrote him, he completely was delusional. He thought perhaps he was a vampire, and he had this hat disguise that made him look pale, and he had these really suspicious lines about devouring young girls and 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 precious blood keeping him alive, where where he was just delusional. And you could tell method, that the, method actor, method actor, yeah. But you could tell the dialogue was meant to draw the characters into a combat encounter. But Mike was such a consummate like cop, like he slipped into a role of, of a veteran twenty year detective, like no guff, no BS. And uh, he he finally did cut through the BS with Durance playing Edward and got the confession that no, in fact, he's not not a vampire.
1: So I'm just thinking. Yep, Mike had to pressure the guy into admitting that he's not a vampire. He did. You know, actually if I if I were playing this now, or maybe if I were playing this before that, I would we'd would have just sacked the guy. So you're saying you got actually more violent? I think that I I think now as a player, I am more inclined just to um take action and let cards fall where they or they land, basically. I I think I'm less careful now.
0: It's interesting. I think we are less careful about I think we're less precious about the characters living. But I don't think you would have attacked Edward slash Durrance. So Emphasizing how good this adventure is, and, and again, those bullets and the, the wonderful lines, as a DM, for the first time, I was really into these different characters. Like in the course of this adventure, you play like five members of the Dwell family, the traveling troop of actors. Um, I played the mom, I played the friend, um, the vampires themselves, and for the first time as a DM, I was able to switch between, you know, gosh, what is that, eight, nine characters pretty seamlessly and quickly, thanks to the dialogue. Uh, and I think I am gonna give myself credit here. I think I played the part of Durrance, being kind of a, like really lame, like he wasn't a vampire. I was very much playing him as as no offense to any goths out there, kind of a lame high school goth kid.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Or at least, I mean, like my perception. I've actually never met a lame high school goth kid, but I've seen many of them in a, in movies.
0: Yeah, the the caricatures on yeah. like like a,
1: yeah, a stereotype goth kid. Yeah,
0: Saturday Night Live. What was his name? Something Azazel. Uh, the, the the Chris. I forgot Chris's last name, character. Chris Katan. The Chris Katan character, yes. Yeah. That's very much what I was going for, and, and you guys picked up on it. So I actually don't think you'd fight him now.
1: You know, no, I, I think just because I would want to bully him. Depends on the character I'm playing, too. Malkior definitely would not have attacked him. But the character I've been playing lately, which Ezrin, Ezrin probably would have. I could see that. Yeah.
0: All right, uh, let's talk about my biggest regret of the session. You have a, a regret? I have a huge regret. So the crew wagon, do you remember that? Yeah, of course. So the crew wagon was locked. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't get into it, and you guys moved on pretty quickly to the wardrobe wagon. And you made the successful search check or perception check, and you did indeed find the green dress with the red hair on it. So like, aha, you know, the first physical evidence that, that she has been here. And you went back to the crew wagon more insistently. And the adventure just says, you know, if, if the characters try to get it in, the magic, or the, the wagon is magically sealed. And as I, as I said a few episodes ago, uh, you you guys' solution for every problem traditionally has been fire. Fire, yeah, yeah. So instantly, Mike's like, okay, no problem. Let's burn the wagon. Yeah. So I, I remember. I, I, so something else I regret. As a uh, so two things I regret here actually. Um, one, I BS the fire not working. Oh really? As a DM, I said no. I didn't say no, but I didn't say yes. And I was just like no the wagons magically sealed and protected and it doesn't catch fire. And I really was preserving the scene I knew was coming up, which was the cart chase. Oh, and I felt so locked into that, that I didn't let you set the wagon on fire. Oh, so you became that guy. I huh? did become that guy. Yes. Um, you guys, I mean, Mike, was, I, did, I didn't notice Mike did. He cut me a look where he was like, okay. Um, But he was kind about it, and and you guys didn't notice, but oh, man, one of those moments where I look back or I I read the stories on Reddit about that DM that railroads the characters, and I was like, oh, that was me in that moment. I, I was so married to the adventure on the page that I didn't let the adventure happen at the table.
1: You know, sometimes you can suspend the writ of habeas corpus if you need to. That is the lamest analogy ever, but that's kind of what I'm thinking.
0: I'm actually in love with the phrase I just said, the adventure on the page versus the literature. at the table. I might, we might have to use that on Facebook or somewhere.
1: Oh yeah. That could be, that could be, uh, the name of your memoirs.
0: And my second regret. So when Mike suggested burning the, uh, burning the wagon, I also tried to dissuade him by reminding him, well, what about the girl? She might be in the wagon. And yeah. And I used to, I used to, oh man, I would prod you guys with, 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 Hey, don't forget this. And don't forget that. Trying to, trying to not, Railroad you, but prod you down what in my head was the right path. Um, A couple of times you guys were going to take actions that were not good, that were neutral or that were evil. And, you know, I was there being like, is that really what you want to do? And I regret that too.
1: So, I mean, if we're going to talk lessons learned, I think part of it is, I mean, yeah, make the game your your own. We talked before about let the characters do what they're going to do. But there's sometimes, again, that you just have to force things into it's about having fun right and if somebody is about to make a disastrous mistake in the game not that oh you're not going to get your objective it's just that you know you're really not going to have fun doing this if you go down that path it's like it's like keeping a kid from touching their hand on the hot stove I feel that
0: I really do and like all so so part of the reason I love the format of our show we don't talk about lessons learned, or, or advice as these absolutes, like you must never interfere with your characters. We, we we don't lay down the absolutes. We talk about real regrets and real successes. And for things like this, it's not that I've stopped prodding you. It's not that I've stopped reminding you. Mm-hmm. I've gotten better at choosing when to do it, and I've got I've gotten better at, hey, if I'm interrupting or reminding you just because I don't like what your character's doing, then I need to stop. Yeah. But if there's a legitimate reason, then I then then hey, I'll feel comfortable reminding you like one case where I still where I still to this day feel very comfortable reminding you of things is this idea that hey, you're around a table, you're not in the world, you you don't, you at the table may not remember that you in the world, picked up this item, two sessions ago, or you may not remember that, you know, you're all holding torches, you lose that because you're sitting around a table with graph paper and dice. So I feel comfortable when you're going to take an action and, and saying, whoa, 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 time out. Remember last room when you picked this thing up. Um, and, and that's a bad example because I, I, I never do it that recently. But I will say, hey, I remember a couple sessions ago, the mayor actually kind of clued you in on this, and your character would for sure remember that even though you've forgotten because you've gone to work for the last two weeks and you've taken care of your kids and all that, and, and you don't have perfect recall of our session two weeks ago.
1: Yeah. And can we quickly sort of tie that into sort of the theme of our show, like uh, the the lessons learned from like a business perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think a lot of people think in terms of business is absolutes, black and white. But I think people who have never worked either running a business or worked in an office uh, probably don't realize it's a lot. It's very squishy. It's very contextual. It's very uh, in the moment. You have to sort of figure out like – Even though as DM, you're not our boss, but if you were, say, like a director or a leader of a team, you know, sometimes somebody on the team, you let them make a mistake, so they'll learn from it. Sometimes it's not the right time to let them make a mistake. And you have to step in and, you know, as a manager, sometimes you have to go, you know, maybe rethink that. But sometimes you can see that somebody's going to make an obvious mistake, but, you know, they're probably going to learn from it. Or maybe they'll prove you wrong. Uh, As DM, I mean, I think you probably have to think in terms of that. Absolutely.
0: And so to talk a little bit about our business backgrounds, Brian and I both work for the same company. Uh, the entire time I've worked there, which has been 11 years, it's been at least Fortune 100. And, and we've delved several times very firmly into the Fortune 50. So a large company, I've worked, uh, I've, I've done several large successful projects and programs for that company. So project management. And we always talk about, hey, let's do lessons learned. Let's do a retrospective. Because yes, there are the data-driven decisions that you make. And if you can get a hold of the data and interpret it, those can be no-brainers. Hey, the data says we should do this, the case is clear, great. A lot of times, and maybe I'm disproportionately remembering these because we discuss them longer, but a lot of times, um, or for sure, where we spend the most time is where we don't have the data because the data make things, makes things black and white. But if you're making a decision based on soft skills, or the data's not as clear and you're left to interpret, which feels like an awful lot of the time, that's when you'll go back and say, okay, let's do this, let's go down this road, and let's do a retro in a couple of weeks and say, did this work out or not? So we can make a better soft skills decision next time.
1: There are dozens of decisions like this every single day that you encounter. So it's not just, you know, I've got to make this big decision that's going to fat cost you know $15 million. It's like, uh, I've got to make a decision. It's like whether or not to send an email to somebody's boss because they forgot to send a report, or that, you know, somebody, uh, you know, they were rude to one of my people in a meeting. You know, you sort of have to make a, these decisions all. Along yeah, do the I way. escalate
0: this one or do I let it go?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Was Frank having a bad day, or is this a pattern? And context is so important. It's exactly what I mean, Brian. Is is um, treating advice as absolute? You just, you just can't. It's contextual. I can't say as a DM you should never remind players. I can't say as a DM you should never prod players. I can't say as a DM you should never railroad players. But do it thoughtfully.
1: Yes, do it thoughtfully. And uh, yeah, no, that's exactly right.
0: But when I didn't let you burn the wagon, I railroaded too much. You think so? I do.
1: So so in hindsight, so I was in that game. Uh, I don't know that on the second play we tried to do the same thing i don't think we did let's talk about the second play for a second but um i but in hindsight though i i don't feel that way and when when your leader or somebody you work with makes a bad decision sometimes it's hard to let that go and it you know years later i don't even think about it
0: actually before we talk about the second play there's one major event we're not talking about
1: so, so the, like how basically the uh climax of the game
0: no the fans
1: yeah so okay so
0: the fans was right before, so the climax was was the cart yeah. chase.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: Right before oh, that. Oh,
1: oh, that. Oh, I had that out of order. I thought because to me that was the defining moment of the game. Yeah, it happened right before the oh, cart chase. Oh my god, I have never felt so terrible.
0: <laughs> All right, so so the game has three encounters. Right, the first encounter is the wolves. The second encounter when so what happens is you can't get into the wagon; it's magically sealed. You can't burn it. You just have to wait until nighttime falls. Dusk falls, and the wagon opens up, and the crew comes out, and you guys confronted the crew. Mike um, did his New York cop, like, we know you're guilty, we know you're vampires, he he played it to the hilt, and they realized what was up, and per the adventure, um, the main vampire, the master vampire, turns to some fans and says, you know, hey, these guys are trying to stop the play, and this horde of teenage girls attacks you, Um, and actually in the adventure, uh, and again, I love the adventure, Michael Hulick writes that you know that there's two dire fans and two crazed fans, and he had stats for them and everything they were based on dark servants and angry mobs. They were under this charm spell from this vampire, and at the time I wasn't sure how to break charm we were in the flow of the game i i I think we looked it up and the wording was unclear and you guys had to fight these fans and
1: you were gonna you said that at after it was over, if I remember correctly that you had a mechanic in your head on how to um knock them out of the uh, from the spell.
0: Well, there th- it was possible to do non lethal damage. But I'm gonna throw <laughs> I'm gonna throw Chris under the bus here. Chris was playing a ranger or a thief or whatever. He had a crossbow. Probably a rogue. And he was fighting into he was firing at, at, at these girls, at these fans that were that, that were chasing him down. And he hit and uh he reduced one to zero hit points and I was like, that was non lethal damage, right? He was like, Nope. And uh we did a few moments where it's like, Are you sure, are you sure? And I was I was still smarting from not letting you burn the wagon that I let Chris kill the girl.
1: <laughs> so so we're talking about rping the hell out of this, I think if I hadn't been playing a paladin, that I would have handled this much differently. But I just had such a moral quandary. I was in such a moral quandary from uh, basically fighting and killing these girls. I think if I had it to do over, I probably would have, I don't know, PVP or something. I don't know how it would have. I would have probably tried to subdue Chris or I probably should have. I don't know. That could have that should have broken up the uh, the team.
0: You know, in a way, I think it did. So
1: we probably half the audience.
0: probably like, wait a minute. What? What are these guys talking about? Let me set some context here. we had been playing fourth edition, which is very combat oriented. We had never really gotten that into role playing. For us, in every adventure up till now, every encounter, you were fighting off monsters and killing monsters, and we'd never had any of those human moments. We'd never, you know, this is one another, another one of those leaps forward in our maturing as 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 uh, as a as a game. I would call ourselves group as a gaming group. Yeah. there you go. This was another leap forward for us. Was having a combat. That wasn't just a simple combat where it's okay to kill whatever you're fighting. You know, it's okay to kill goblins. It's okay to kill bugbears. It's okay to kill kobolds. It's not okay to kill teenage girls that are under the spell of some vampire. Nope. And, and at the time, we all kind of went with it because it's what we'd been doing. But man, it hit you hard.
1: Oh, yeah, it really did. It still bugs me.
0: Yeah. I remember we were standing in the kitchen after the game and you're talking about, oh, man, this, this tears me up. At work, the next week, every time I saw you, you talked about how, how torn up you were. The next time we played, you were still torn up.
1: Yeah, it's it's really weird that it had such an impact on me, but it really did. It really did. So we only went on to play
0: a few more games with these characters, and these characters kind of dried up. Like this campaign just kind of died. And I think this is the moment. This is the moment the fatal wound was struck. Even if it took us another three adventures to die,
1: possibly. I, I though to honestly to admit, uh, Malkior, the the paladin that I played in this, and Inigo. Montoya, of course, from the Princess Bride, who's the character I played uh, before this, are still my two favorite characters that I've ever played. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Would you ever want to re- revisit Malcure?
1: So, possibly, or, or maybe play another paladin. I, I think I like playing a paladin, partly because I can be a jerk, but I tend to, uh, I tend to have a pretty strong sense of right and wrong. Um, so... I don't know. I I I really like I really like playing a paladin. I really like how I have to think and act uh, in playing that as opposed to uh, it just requires more work. It it requires more. Um, I guess the the best word to use would be discipline for me to play a paladin than it is to play for any anything else.
0: That makes sense. If you uh if you play D anD D and you base it purely on the character sheet, getting more gold getting more experience, getting magical items. It can very quickly turn your character into a sociopath. Yeah. What what does this adventure do for me? What reward am I going to get? And you're right. When you when you guys play a paladin or a cleric or we give your character some external motivation, it makes the experience much richer than yes. you know, building on your character sheet.
1: Absolutely. Being a sociopath is a really good way of putting it.
0: Yeah, it it makes your character a sociopath flat out. How does this benefit me, period? Yeah. So let's talk about. Actually, I want to ask you some more questions. Okay. Um, so I talked about my. You know, I didn't let you burn the wagon, which I, I feel bad about. I'm, I'm fine with that. I let you kill the girls. I'm not fine with that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, would you would you have had me as a DM not let Chris do that?
1: No, because he needs free will. Yeah. And you, like, I can I can rationalize how the the in, in the way that you rationalized it that the uh, uh, wagon didn't burn, but you physically changing gosh i mean it, it, you would have had to have done something unthinkable like um like i don't know like the end of ghostbusters when dana is turned into zool in the dog and she gets burned up but somehow she breaks through the husk at the end of the movie and everybody's happy where you know if it if if i were playing that or i was doing that you know she and rick moranis would have been dead <laughs> you know realistically um i i guess you could have played it that way but that would have felt fake and cheap. Um but also not allowing him to kill them would have been worse. Mm-hmm. So no I, you couldn't have done that.
0: I can't I remember we had some reason but you were a paladin and I'm sure people listening at home are like, well why didn't the paladin just heal the girls? And it's a legit question. I remember it came up at the table and I don't remember I just like you'd used your spells or something. I,
1: so but she was dead, right?
0: Well we, yeah but but
1: I mean, so the public-
0: oh yeah, that, that wasn't that wasn't available to you. You were only fifth level.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I can't resur- couldn't resurrect her. I mean, if she had zero health and she was down, uh, that's one thing. But Chris killed her.
0: Yeah, I remember I let Chris narrate his crit because it was a crit he killed her with, and yes. I let him narrate it. And the way he narrated it was gruesome, and I'm not going to repeat it because it's not appropriate for the podcast. I don't feel like it is. No, but it was gruesome enough where you know I, I don't know what what he was playing at, but she was undeniably dead.
1: Damn you, Chris. Yeah.
0: Let's talk briefly about the second time we played this. so I went on to play this adventure too. I, I loved it so much. I got into the characters again, the bulleted list of of lines were available. um loved it that I went on to play it two more times. Oh, we have so so Mike, who played his, his wife, um had a friend coming into town, and, and this friend had always wanted to play d and d heard we were playing and uh you know I felt such responsibility to introducing someone new to d and d that I asked you guys, "Hey, would you mind?" if we ran dusk again that way Mike's wife Liz and her friend could play um one one of the best adventures that we'd played to date with good dialogue and interaction and not so combat focused and have it be a great introduction to the game does anything stand out from you from the second play
1: i mean not really other than this no, it wasn't the, this was not the game that Mike dm'd but it was at his house
0: yes it was at his house
1: uh so no, if I can put myself back in the um, my mindset though at the time, I probably it probably tedious isn't the right word. Uh, wrote would probably I mean I would was go- maybe going through the motions. Um, it, I don't think it was as exciting. But I the thing I don't remember though is how we resolved the fans or did that actually come up in the second play?
0: I hand waved it. Okay, I completely hand waved the second play. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I it felt a little. Running an adventure the second time didn't bother me with new people at the table. Running it with you and Mike and Chris at the table still, that, that was a little, yeah. I would never do that again. I, I would literally would never do that again. Um, but I felt so good about this adventure that, that it felt like, you know, if we're going to introduce someone to D&D, let's have this. This is the one to do it. Let's give them this transformative experience that we
1: had where it was the first time we role played and we were all floored by the power of dialogue. But we had been playing for a while, too, and we yeah. were primed for that. I don't think he was.
0: It's true, yeah. They were pretty stilted about wanting to interact. I think it felt goofy. If if we had started off with more of a combat focus game where you're moving your pieces and rolling dice, they might have been more comfortable.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things. I'm not calling the Citizen Kane. I mean, it's it's I, I really enjoyed it. But I mean, if you're a 13 year old and the first movie you watch is Citizen Kane, I don't know, you know, what you're going to actually get from it.
0: Yeah, that's true. You're not mature enough. You're not there yet. Yeah. Or, As a I mean, group, we had to be there to be able to have the dialogue.
1: Yeah. All right,
0: I think that's uh, RPG lessons learned for this week. The lesson learned, well, a couple lessons learned. You know, let the players do stuff, but also don't let the players do stuff. It, it's 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 that context. It's what we talked about. You've you've got to read the situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, uh, while I'm thinking about it, how about uh, you guys out there subscribe to the podcast? Go to RPG Lessons Learned dot com uh, and click on uh, one of the episodes. And there, while you're listening. Uh, You can subscribe either through iTunes, Google Play, or your RSS reader of choice. It's pretty awesome. We would appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned. And we're sharing ours with you.